Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Proudly presented by worldpodcast.com. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everybody and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. This is the show where we cover all things video. Today we're going to be talking about colour grading. Colorists. Today on the show we've got Paul Lear who's an old friend of mine that I worked with many years ago. Paul, thanks for being on the show. Oh, no problem. Thank you. I wanted you to be the first colorist to come on the Pro Video Podcast because you are the person who introduced me to color grading and what it was. I had no idea before meeting you. (laughs) Thank you. Back then, it really was seen as a black art because it's this footage that was quite flat and looked pretty average. And then suddenly you're working your magic and it's just popping and looking amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And when I first started looking at how you were doing it, I couldn't wrap my head around how different the image was looking after it had a look applied to it. Yes. So for the audience... We're going to dive right into the role of a colorist, and then we'll talk about some of your work and history. But the difference between creating a color correction versus a color grade, in your view, what are the two differences? Well, there's the technical part that you have to get. You know, it has to be, at least it has to start out correct. And so, you know, when I first met you, it was Telecine, and we actually started from film. And had to scan it, um, you know, in real time. And the tools we had were very limited to, you know, today's awesome technology that we have. Um, but you still had to come up with what was proper, you know, and you had to start there. And you can look at scopes, you can use your eyes, you've got all those tools to do it. But then it's that next step of then being creative and coming up with something. You know, I worked with um, a brilliant engineer. Um, 20 years ago, who could color and make things perfect. That's not what a client would want, but he was very good at that. So then it's, it's that next step that just takes, you know, years of experience and, and looking at things. And I'm sure you're going to ask me questions about that, um, to then go to that next step to be creative and to understand, you know, the whole storyline and what you're trying to do in a color session. Yeah, it it reminded me of listening to a Hollywood director who said um, visual effects in 3D, there are people who would do it photorealistically, it'd be bang on. But for cinema and film, you don't want that. You're augmenting and you're creating a look and it's beautiful, it's unrealistic. (laughs) And it's the same thing I feel with colour grading, that technical correctness isn't actually bringing an emotion or a look or a feel to it and that's where the art of color grading comes in yeah correct yeah so so when you're looking at a new project what are the processes that you go through with the director or anybody else in the team to understand what you're going to bring in your role to the work yeah well it it depends on the project um you know, short-form commercials are completely different than long-form. So I'll take commercials to start with. Um, you know, you, you work on a commercial maybe for four hours, um, and that might be your day, you know, half day, depending on what you're doing. Um, and that is all done pretty much right there. You very rarely have conversation beforehand. You know, all of a sudden you come in, you see the footage, and boom, you've got to go. And, you know, that's a very pressure-intense you know, session, not only um, color grading fast and coming up with looks, but, um, you know, also dealing with multiple clients at the same time who might 
surprisingly have different opinions of what they want, um, which is always fun. <laughs> I haven't um, experienced that myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> um, but, you know, the first thing to do, even if they shot, you know, on the new cameras that look awesome, you know, is, is to get the image looking normal, you know, correct, but then also watching it because you want to make sure that if you set a color or a look um, on a shot, you've got to know that you can do that for all the shots. The first, you know, the, the amount of times you kind of go into and oh, I have this great idea and they tell you their idea and you kind of work together. And then you play, you know, the 30 seconds down and you're like, well, but this, this isn't going to work. You know, it works. These shots are awesome at the front and then you lost light or something happened. If you yeah. live in New Zealand, it could have rained cloud sun again. Ooh, um, the same <laughs> definitely. <laughs> um, and so you've got to, you've got to consider that. And that's yeah. definitely part of it. Yeah. Um, where on, you know, t- big TV, you know, features or feature films, um, that's different. You know, you do usually have a discussion beforehand. You talk about different looks, what they're going to do, anything that they can do shooting to kind of help that. Um, and then you kind of go from there and during the shooting, you know, usually you have some tests and they come in, which is great. You know, the director and DOP, hopefully together. And, um, then you kind of, then you start that creative process. And, um, you know, for me, I don't want the viewer to actually see what I've done. You yeah. know, I, I don't want to give it away. It's just, it's supposed to enhance the story, just like the sound does, just like a visual effects do. It's not supposed to pop out. So it's being able to, you know, make it technically correct and then add those looks on there um, that help tell the story. Yeah. I want to just capture who you are and where you've come from you've spent 23 years in the industry yes. so you you've got a really rich history of going through as a colorist through a huge change in that time so at the moment you're yes. at images sound have been there for the past is it what was it 14 About years 14 you were years saying so. yeah and i was working with you then this last 15 years has been a huge change in the industry but what mm. where were you before images Tell us about your career path, really. Yeah, well, I started out, um, you know, in high school in the states. Actually, being interested in video and video production. The high school I went to had a little TV station. Um, you know, we did a show once a week, and so that's kind of where it started. Um, coloring, I knew nothing about. To be honest, I had no idea. I, you know, wanted to be an editor, pretty much like everyone else. I couldn't draw. Um, I have no artistic ability with my hands, um, so. At that point in time, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't see doing any effects. That that's not where I was. I could see different colors. I could. Um, I used to work at a Photoshop, so I understand, you know, photos and lights. And then it just kind of built. I got um, introduced to uh, someone at a company called Digital Magic in Santa Monica. What was that 20, 23 years ago ish? And. Um, that kind of started it. He introduced me to what a colorist was. He was an assistant at the time and I just hung out for three months really and got a job because someone wanted to go on holiday, which was awesome because I so needed money at that point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I was, I was 20 when I started and, um, you know, it just kind of built from there. It took a couple of years 
of working as an assistant and I did the overnight shift for rushes when you actually had film and shot on film. So I did that for three and a half years before I slowly moved up to a, you know, an earlier morning shift and then the day shift working on commercials. So at that point it was just, um, television drama shot on film and, you know, fast forward now I, um, I've been in here in New Zealand at images and sound for 14 years. I also freelance around the world, um, whether it's projects or teaching colors. Uh, I use the base light software. So I kind of go back and forth with that. Um, I also work with a company called, um, the black hat Island. Uh, they're in Italy. It's kind of this, um, online post-production facility. Right. Cool. And so I do some work from them also. So I kind of, I kind of float around and it's mainly just to kind of keep my foot in different, different things, different looks, you know, different clients, something just yeah. kind of fun, really. Baselight um, is probably not as well known as DaVinci Resolve. Correct. Baselight, you were one of the early, early adopters and it's proven to be a really powerful tool for color grading post-production. How long, you, yes. how long have you been using it? Oh, I don't know. From version one. Yeah. Um, I guess it'd be eight or nine years. I don't know. But I was one of the very first, um, yeah, to use it. So I bet you've fed back a lot of um, <laughs> support tickets and recommendations. Yes. I mean, the good thing is they, I've, you know, the main people in the company know me. So it actually yeah. works really well. I can send an email and definitely get a response. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it started out as a lot of command line things along with, you know, a very simple color tools um and now it's yeah just an incredible piece of software it's great it's um also uh got a third-party plugin for avid now as well yeah and nuke and nuke yeah yep. and yep. final cut and an older version of final cut yeah so yes so it is um an accessible tool for those who are looking to add color grading into those pieces of software at that time that that was being launched at images and you're doing that I started to understand what a DI was. Right. <laughs> Before that, I had no concept of it. So a DI is a digital intermediate. Um, do you mind sort of talking about that a little bit and what that process is? Yeah. Yeah. So years before I met you, I actually did my first DI, not as a colorist, more of a um, oh, film IO, so scanning and, and recording. And um, at that time, I was a colorist, uh, and they kind of asked me to go into this. It was for the movie Powder, um, and I did, and I did a little color grading uh, on that. It was a total different system at that point, and to be honest, it was a horrible <laughs> process. Oh, my God. Painfully slow. What you saw on the monitor had nothing to do what the film print was the next day that you saw. Um, I... Yeah, I couldn't sit with the client and, and say one way or another. It was just, it was crazy. Uh, the technology was so new back then. Um, I, you know, speed forward a little bit to when I met you 11 years ago. DI was still new, but coming out. And basically, it's a, it was the digital intermediate. So used to shoot on film, sometimes video, but most of the time it was film. And then we had that stage where clients, directors, DOPs knew what you could do in the video realm and they wanted to do that for feature films. And so that's pretty much what a digital intermediate is. Yeah. And then at that point, after what you did and hopefully had calibrated monitors, uh, then it recorded back to film, you know, which was a very expensive process and you couldn't screw that up. <laughs> 
you know, you did a, we had about a five minute test for a feature film. Everyone kind of bought off on it and that was it. Um, you know, it was kind of magic behind the scenes. And then, you know, all of a sudden three months later, whatever, when you're done with the film and finally got it printed out, um, you could see it in the big screen, but it was, you know, 60, you know, say $60,000. It wasn't something that you could just do. Back in that era, I was working in four by three standard definition (laughs) (laughs) and nowhere near real time. And I remember you working on features at like 2K. Close, yeah, Yeah. and close to real time. It wasn't real close. Yeah, it wasn't. It depended on what I did or how creative I got. But yeah, yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't bad. It blew me away. I was like, (laughs) just the looking at the difference quality of image, looking at that 2K in almost real time. It seemed so fast. (laughs) (laughs) And that you could apply these looks and um, just work so quickly with it when I was using tools such as After Effects and every shot was a painstaking process. (laughs) I remember coming in and watching you. (laughs) Yes, well, look, and and honestly, that was was one of the things Baselight was really good at. It was... It had these great tools, but they were just so simple to use. The, the learning curve was wasn't steep. Um, you know, you could dig into it, and there was very you know technical things you could do, and very you know uh, advanced tools. But you didn't have to use them. And at the time, Filmlight, who makes Baselight, had just an incredible uh, calibration system that went from your monitor to their system to actually recording out in film and they had all this set up and that's what brought me back around to doing DI type work because at you know like I said before previous jobs in digital in intermediate uh, just was a nightmare and I jumped out as fast as I could it was yeah. such a cool thing to see my name you know my very first you know film I worked on and see my name in the credits at the end of a film but wow I didn't want to go back there yeah it's it's now changed so much, and um, a lot of the content that we're working with is coming in at 4K, and that seems quite standard as a master. Um, has, has it sort of stretched much further than that at the higher end of post-production on resolution, or is it more about the dynamic range and the quality of the image? Yeah, it's definitely more about the dynamic range. Um, we... Most of the time, still, we finish at 2K. You know, yeah. there are films we finish at 4K, but not a lot currently. Um, Do you think Netflix and online delivery might in- influence that a bit more in the future? Yeah, I think in the next couple of years, it definitely will. Yeah. yeah. And what about a, a high dynamic range with HDR? Has that really come into production, or is it really still early on in that process? I, I think it's early. I'd yeah. like to, yeah. It's, it's great. And it's very impressive. I hope it. I hope it makes it. I hope yeah. it's not one of those three D things that we chased, you know, what, three four years ago and <laughs> didn't end up doing anything with. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that's coming. I, I think because the technology is just getting cheaper and the displays are just getting you know that much better, it does make sense. I mean, Rec Seven or Nine, you know, for the standard video is just such an old format yeah. that you know all the monitors we have nowadays can do better than that. Yeah. 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 Uh, 709. I, I lived in 601 for so long. <laughs> it seemed like such a big step up. And then there's 2020 and yeah, aces and things like this. Yes. These are all things I had no idea of when I left images 11 years ago, but I've come to learn them all. <laughs> so, um, how, what's the reality of a colorist now of, um, where the technology is. And I know that, um, 
directors are really looking to explore the, the uh, developing technologies and try these new cameras and things mm-hmm. versus the reality of productions and the budgets and the restrictions of getting the job done. Do, do you feel that some projects are a little bit more um, trialing new, new ways and processes versus, or is it just mostly getting the job done? And it's, <laughs> what's your view? Um, you know what? I think it depends on the client. Um, I, yeah, <laughs> I've got some thoughts on that. Um, well, sure. I no guess one, no yeah, one will yeah, listen no, exactly. to this. <laughs> no one listens to this rant. Um, look, everyone wants to play with technology yeah. and that's, that's great. Um, and especially the younger people coming up, you know, it's this camera and this and, oh, we could shoot an 8K or 6K or have this drone fly over or, um, you know, you get them coming in, oh, I read on the form if I do this and set my camera with X, Y, Z type things, then I'm going to get this amazing look. And you know what? That, that's great. But when you work with someone who's been in the industry for a while, they just know how to shoot. And it, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing with photography. You look at, you know, the different things out there and they could have the, the newest Canon camera or just some cheesy little pocket camera. And it they just make amazing photos. And so it's the same thing with, with directors of photography. Yeah. If they know what they're doing and you know, you do tests on the camera, so you understand the camera, but then you just take that knowledge and then you create, you know, the scene in front of the camera where younger people get stuck so much on the technology and the fact that, Oh, I've captured the 12 stops of dynamic range or 13 stops of dynamic range, or I've shot on raw. So that means, it's all there and you can pull it out as a colorist, which sure we've got, you know, amazing tools, but it totally takes away from the whole look and feel. I mean, there's reasons why, you know, DOPs do an amazing job and it's, and it's that. So it is, it is tough. It's one of my things that, you know, I kind of talk to people about and, um, you know, kind of feel them out when they come in the room and we do camera tests to really kind of see, what they're looking at and what their questions are. And you can pick up right away. Okay. You know, this person's on technology and I need to go down this road and I need to talk to him though about what's really important at the end of the day, which is light the scene um, and put the light where you want people to look. Yep. It's um, a bit of a trap to think that you've got this big safety net rather than (laughs) actually throwing yourself into your creative vision that you truly believe in crafting that, in the camera yes. on the set. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's something that I've definitely seen as well. And, and then that experience and time, uh, you, your safety net is your own confidence of what you're filming and yes. not what the technology is going to save, save your bum. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and, 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 you know, as, as I'm sure you do and I do, you know, you can do that and you can save shots and you yeah. can help them out. But then that's what I'm spending my time doing. It's sort of creating, you know, helping them create their vision. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. And, and yeah, you just kind of have to go. And, you know, lately it's been dynamic range or, you know, high, the high speed and high ISO, mm-hmm. ISO and, Oh, we don't have to put lights here because the camera just captures this. And it does. But again, is it capturing what you want to show the audience? Craft that light. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. And look, it's the same thing. uh, You know, I'm sure you're going to ask me with, with colorists. It's, you know, I, I feel kind of that same way. Um, the new people coming in just don't have that experience. There isn't the mentors, 
um, that there used to be. You don't have to follow a path anymore to get, you know, to be a camera operator or to get to be a DOP or honestly to get to be a colorist. You can go online, download free resolve software. And wow, there you go. Um, yeah. base light, um, has, there's an education version coming out that you're going to be able to download also and, and play with. Um, but that you, you're losing the art about it. You can learn technically, you can go online and look at YouTube tutorials, or I create tutorials for base light, but that that's not coloring. No, it's, um, it's the craft behind it and the understanding and the scene of light and the scene of color. And, yeah. and it's, it's massive. It's huge. It's, um, it's why people who join my team, if they, I, I have people who are really passionate about 3d and I encourage them to get a camera. It doesn't have to be expensive, but get a camera and take thousands of shots and understand light and shadow. Yes. <laughs> Start there. And then, you know, and it's like, a composition but at the end of the day it's also about just content if the content's not strong (laughs) it really doesn't matter how we polish it (laughs) it's still a proverbial (laughs) yes it is yeah i think that is the um it's really easy to get distracted by by putting some time and and energy into the wrong place and not focusing on the right things yeah yes Stay off the internet. <laughs> I think that's a good place. But look, like you're saying, it, it's just be practical. Go out and shoot things. Go out and you know look at a scene, or just look at you know a sunset, or or you know go into an office building or a hospital or wherever you know, and you you just feel it, you know, and you feel that emotion. You can see different things, people's reactions. You know, you can see what people think of you know a, a romantic dinner. And it's, and then use that. And that's, you know, look, when I teach a colorist and I kind of go through that mentoring thing, that's definitely, you know, the process is you've got to come up with these things and there has to be a reason that you do what you do. You're not going to just put a look on or a color on for the heck of it. It's got to go with the story and have emotion. So when we're talking about creating a look and do you have a project that you might like to talk about how you have graded that? to help boost an emotion or add an emotion to that that the viewers might be able to have a look at. I'm thinking of um, Hillary was a really good yeah, one. Yeah, that was a good one. The use of color in that, it was, it was really uh, vibrant and passionate, I thought, in the color that was coming out in that. So what's your process of crafting that look? Yeah, that was, that was definitely a tough project. It was um, a six-part kind of mini-series. And... Um, the color and the look had to work over what 40, 40 plus years of Edward Hillary's life. Yeah. And, um, and yet it still had to look like the same kind of, you know, six part miniseries. Um, so if you go from episode one to six, it's not a completely different exactly, show. Exactly. And, um, you know, certain episodes had a very large time span in it. So you couldn't, you couldn't take that jump or that leap too far. Um, that process started, oh, I'd say almost a year before I actually worked on it. I worked yeah. with the same clients on another, um, kind of television feature and, um, they were talking about the Hillary special and what they were going to do. And, you know, at that point, um, you know, I, I knew all about Edward Hillary. I understood, you know, what he did, um, and his passion kind of behind it. And, 
so I was very interested in, in the project just in general. And as they kind of started, we, th- we just kind of threw out different ideas and looks. And it was great to talk to um, David Paul, the uh, DOP, and kind of go through that process with them. So this is one that, uh, you know, yes, I'm very proud of. And at the same point, it was just it, – it just – we collaborated very, yeah. you know, very well. It was, it was great. He did tests. You know, the first time he came in with actual footage from, you know, the – well, I think it was, I don't know if it was location footage or on set. It was probably set footage. Um, you know, we just had a play and we just kind of went way too far, really. And, and he showed those looks to the director and the producer. And um, Is that, that part of the process sometimes? Pushing it further than it should so that you can pull it back and finding that it, right place? It is, yeah, definitely. And definitely with clients and especially early on because we're not, you can't, you know, make it perfect or finesse that look too much. Cause I haven't even seen the story yet. I haven't seen yeah. what they shot. You know, it might be day. I think at that point it was like, it was like within the first two weeks of shooting. Um, then there was so much more to go, but it was just to get some ideas across to have them start thinking because we didn't burn in. They had lots when they were shooting, but it wasn't anything I was creating. We kind of just came up with some generic ones. So it wasn't the, the final look. More of a technical look. It was definitely more of a technical one, yeah. And so this was kind of their first way to kind of see what I had envisioned. And, you know, working with David Paul coming up with, I think we came up with four four or five different kind of options. Yeah, it's um, it's really hard to have a vocabulary to describe color. <laughs> it really is. But what I really liked about it is that there was this um, vibrancy and energy, but it also had um, a historical yeah. sort of feel to it Very as good. well. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was a real mix. It felt like you could step back into that era. Yeah, that- and, and look, and that was the idea. It was you know shot on obviously on video. Um, but it was supposed to kind of go back in time. You know, it had a softer kind of filmic look. We did add a little grain. You don't see that. Um, really, it's just a very fine texture there. But it also does, yeah, it definitely looks more filmic. And that was the idea, to go back in time and to kind of tell that story and have that setting, even though it's, you know, it's all shot in present time. There was no, you know, old footage in that. So for the listeners who aren't sure what we're talking about there'll be show show note links so edmund hillary is a really famous new zealander who was the first person in the world to climb mount everest and in new zealand he's a a huge part of our culture and history and he's even on the five dollar bill he's that important to us so this is definitely not something to um this content needed to be treated with the respect that it deserved and that's what i really felt from that as well it was really respectful of him and authentic to him as a New Zealander, um, being a bit of a rugged Kiwi <laughs> that came through. It's quite interesting. We could, you know, I could try and draw parallels to adding the grain to show the grit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've all sort of um, made artistic tangents to waft on a little bit in our time. But yeah, I, I, don't, know there was, I don't know if we delved that deep into, uh, into it. It was more... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it had to it had to look different. You yeah. know, it had to have a unique look so when it was on television that it it did stand out. Um you're right, everyone in New Zealand knows him or knew him. And so you you had to be honest to the to the story. You know, there yeah. was nothing that could just stand out or jump and um 
yeah, like I said, we just we just played around for a lot of time. And the good thing, and and this is where you get it on these large longer projects, but also ones that actually have budget for color correction. Um, I had time to play, you know, yeah. and, and experiment. And, you know, I spent days just kind of coming up with it. And the good thing was the deadlines, because there were so many effects in it. Uh, also the deadline wasn't close. And so I actually had that time that, to do it and then present different things to the clients and go, Hey, this is what I'm thinking. And this is what, you know, we want to do. And, you know, New Zealand has insanely bright green grass at times and, um, that didn't fit at all. And so it was, you know, how to deal with things like that to make it, you know, feel, feel like it should. But also, um, having, the um, Himalayas, a completely different location, fit in with the whole series as well. Yes. So you've got some really quite contrasting locations. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I, picking up on your point of um, trying things, I think that's a really good way of putting it because people will sort of say making lots of mistakes, but it's exactly the same thing of like knowing what isn't working to then really find your way to what is working for a project. Yes. So, so how many mistakes did you make? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I've made plenty. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and look in that one, um, because, you know, obviously they, they, they did go to, they, you know, went to Everest. They didn't actually go up there was a lot of effects built into that you know there's a whole crevasse scene that was effects based uh so it was great because i actually then was able to kind of look ahead two episodes to make sure that the the color and the the feeling that we had was able to kind of go with them yeah uh which was perfect because normally you know i would barely ever see the next episode before i had to finish the the first one right and I could actually kind of bounce back and forth and it was great with the clients. Same thing. I could explain, show them what we were doing and then just, you know, kind of come back to it. It's really interesting you say that because I've found myself when I've trapped myself into a corner before where, <laughs> yeah. and you, I learned a big lesson from it is looking at all the content and where the shots might be harder. And it's almost, yes. they, they sort of lead where the rest of the grade has to fit because you might have shot one looking epic and there's just no way that shot 10 is going to be in the same style. So is, is it a little bit of an approach when you're looking at content to just sort of look throughout all of the content and get a feel for where it's all kind of sitting in relation to each other as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, you, de you yeah, that's a very experienced thing that you you kind of do cuz look when you start out you don't you get so excited you get this awesome look like you're saying shot 1 or wherever you start now it's all nonlinear cuz you start in the middle. Yeah. And uh you know, you talk to the client like, "Oh, I got this great look. They have this vision and it's just amazing." And you're right. You go to the close up or the next scene or you know, something in that and it just doesn't work. And so yes, you definitely need to um you know, whether you watch the whole thing or you know, you watch parts of it or just fast forward through it. And so you can have an idea of how it's shot and what's, yeah, what's going to cause problems. Definitely. I, I, it's, it's easy to look for those really pretty, beautiful shots to start with too. Yes, and it then is. to show how amazing you can look something. I, I tend to look for the things that I, I'm going to be scared of first. <laughs> <laughs> Cause if I can tackle that, then I know that I'm like the rest of it's all downhill from there. 
No, look, that's definitely true. I mean, you do. I, you know, I kind of go through and find a harder scene or a couple different scenes that are totally opposite to to play with, and then always. And as I teach, you know, young colorists, um, you have to do a couple wide shots and you have to do a couple close ups, and they have to match. Yeah before you do anything else. And, um, you know, then you get further in with, you know, all the crazy things we can do with, you know, selecting areas and, and brightening and darkening things or changing colors. But you definitely don't want to go down those roads until you know you can do it on the other shots. Like you said, then you just, you get trapped in a corner and you're stuck. Yeah. I think that's something I also <laughs> learned is, um, I describe it as like trying to prune a tree. There's no point going in there and cutting off individual leaves. You want to start <laughs> hacking away some big branches so you know what you're dealing with, not wasting your time. And and that is a really big one for someone such as yourself, where your role as a colorist is to get a whole commercial done in a few hours. Yeah. So you can't go in there and start um, pulling secondaries <laughs> and doing some tracking of some... You know, it is really about laying down... Oh, oh, Yes. What are the, what is the yep. process of tackling that the broad, broad brush strokes and then? Yeah, no, you're definitely right. Um, it's just putting down that foundation. You know, everything has to match, and that's where you start. Um, you know, whether it's a commercial and you have you know four hours, or every so often you have a couple of days, um, to you know a feature film where you've got months to to work. It's it still all has to match. You know, you don't want anything to stand out. You don't want the take the audience away from the story just yeah. because something didn't match or something stands out. And so, no, you do. I work in, in big um, just rotations and, and, you know, I just kind of add layers as I go. Um, first, you have to match everything and that's a great way to find out right away is, you know, is a look going to work? Is there, you know, whoever the client is, is there's vision going to work for this or do I, you know, need to kind of work up something to, you know, make everyone happy uh, that then actually works with the footage. And then you, right. Then time permitted, you just go back and you keep adding in things to finesse it, you know, more and more. And at some point you have to know when to stop because, (laughs) you know, yeah, at some point it just really doesn't make a difference anymore. Yeah. I think that is a really hard one. It's, um, what is it? Art is abandoned. <laughs> and that's, that's what makes it painful. <laughs> so um, we've talked about a few terms that I kind of wanted to drill into some of the terminology that is used in color grading because um, and the audience to this show, I know across the broad stroke of the industry, and I love that. Things such as LUTs, and they've become quite popular online now. Yes. And it's almost like a LUT is seen as a magic bullet. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got some technical LUTs and then we've got creative LUTs. Yep. Um, for someone who's listening to this and hasn't even heard of a LUT, what would your description be of what it is? It's something that's necessary nowadays because of the cameras that you shoot on. You know, they've got the very high dynamic range, um, you know, anywhere from 10 to say 13 stops. But to do that, the image looks very flat, um, soft, usually desaturated. If you just look at it straight as they're recording it, you know, whether it's like an Airy Log C, everyone has their own flavor of nothing, every camera manufacturer. And so you have to put a lot, you have to have a way to get that, extract that data and make it, um, you know, viewable on a monitor. Yeah. Uh, and so those are the technical LUTs that you can do. So it's basically changing 
the, the log format that you're seeing coming out of the camera into, say, a Rec. 709, which is what you would normally do, to see it properly on a display. The problem with that is that to do that, you are throwing away information. Um, you know, Rec. 709 has nine-ish stops of latitude, uh, if you're lucky. And, you know, you're trying to cram 13 stops in there. So the one way to do it, obviously, is to make it flat and no contrast or to add these LUTs, which then makes it look normal. Um, but, but you do have to understand what they do. Yeah. And then, yes, then there's creative LUTs that you can do that apply different kind of looks to it. Again, every time you do this, you're throwing away information. And so you have to be careful about what, you, what you're seeing. Um, I always like when on set they use like a Rec. 709 LUT. Because then they can see that they've sh- the ratios are right, the light's in the right place, and it looks good. Knowing that they've got the extra latitude when it comes to color correction is awesome. Because then if you know the sky's blown out a little bit, we can bring that back. Or if something's a little too dark, we can bring you know a little bit more information in there. Now just remember though, there's more highlight information than there is dark information. But if you look at it flat on set it's just so different and yeah. it's so hard to get used to. And yes, you know, I've got clients come in like, Oh, we did this. It's all the information's there, but the light's not where it needs to be. Yep. And then, you know, then it takes my time to try to craft that instead of doing that, you know, in camera. And so, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. You want, you know, you want to give them LUTs and, and clients ask for LUTs, you know, for me to generate them LUTs for certain projects with looks on them. But again, Yes, editorial wise, that helps because then their clients or you know whoever they're they're showing the rough cuts to can understand the story more and it has that look, which helps sell that for the the final version. But at the same point, um, you know sometimes it, it's too distracting, yeah. and they really just need a technical lot to know that what they shot is proper, and then you know we can just do little samples for them every so often. That works usually much better. It is really um, trying to see the light and the shadows. And I, I, a trick that I used to do is almost um, t- turn off the chrominance. So I'm looking at yes. luminance yes. only. And that gives you a really good understanding of what light is doing because we're so more, so much more sensitive to the luminance values than we are the chrominance. Yes. But it's really hard when you're telling somebody that to start a color grade, I'm going to turn off the color. <laughs> But, yeah, it's a trick that I learned along my way of really understanding luminance and seeing light and seeing shadow and and what we can do there. Because, like you were saying, with the LUT is possibly you're basically cutting off either one of them in the, in the shadows or the brights. Yes. And would a good approach for somebody, it's really quick and fast to put a LUT onto something and then to oh, have totally. it look good. But um, to, you should be able to take a logarithmic image and build up that image yourself to create your own and then actually see how much detail is in the shadows when you have that contrast. <laughs> yeah, look, and, and different software packages and systems do it differently. I mean, one thing Baselight has is just the color science is amazing. And um, we can work in a large color space, uh, which would be either be ASUS or uh, an Airy Log C color space. And when I grade, I do throw on lots 
they're not actually lots. It's just a, it's a very scientific mathematic process that converts, you know, whatever they shot in camera into the ACES color space. And then I can look at it properly. Um, and that advantage is, is I have full control. So I'm not actually throwing a lot on and getting rid of that information. And that's the key. You know, yeah. when you go to a color session, please don't bring footage that has a lot on it. It's just, you're, you know, tying the, the color's hands behind their back. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. Um, there's no more information I can get out of it. Hashtag Canon 5D <laughs> with profile. <profo. laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there are lots that you throw on, but it, it, again, it depends on that software package because yeah. I do use that because technically it's it's much better. The colors are much more accurate um, doing the, the proper math to get from one place to the other. But I'm not I'm not losing anything. I'm not, you know, in that Rec. 709 domain or a very yeah. small color space. I'm in a very, you know, huge, large color space um, that I'm not going to lose anything. And then I select – what happens then and what I get rid of or what I don't need. Um, yeah. It's not just a lot. And how how much are you working in the ACES color space for majority of your projects? Uh, look, for about three years, I'm 90%. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to dig into ACES because a lot of people might not have heard about it. Yeah. Um, I first came across it through FXPhD and understanding color science did a few geeky yes, um, yes. <laughs> classes in that um, so the, it can get a little bit technical and a bit mathematical but as an overview it's putting all the different cameras into a similar real world color space but a really wide one at that yes yeah um, that's pretty broad is there anything <laughs> <laughs> any more information that you could add to that <laughs> yes don't, know, don't think we're going to go down that um, look in, in simple terms basically you're taking something um, you know say as a kid you had 64 you know Crayola crayons and that that's what you could have uh, and your friend maybe had you know the 32 set and he had to work with that or she had to work with that now with Asus you know I'm working with you know, 128 or, or even more, you know, it's, it's just that much more information. So yeah. dynamic range color, and it just allows you to kind of standardize all the cameras, all the different formats into one place without losing any information. And, and really that's the key. Yeah. You're not losing anything when you go there. Um, where if I was grading in a, in a Rec. 7 or 9 space, I would have to kind of throw in a lot and I would be losing things. Uh, and that is something I, I show colorists, I show clients, you know, right away of why you want to work in this very large color space. Uh, it just gives you those options and, and yeah, it's just unlimited. Um, technically, like, it, like you said, it is a way to work with the larger dynamic range get it into one place that then you can create. And the other advantage of, of an ACES color space is then you have all your outputs. And then again, it's mathematically done. So if you're going to um, to a theater and you need to create a, a DCI, you have P3 color space. You know, If you're going to television and you need Rec. 709 or you're going to go to Rec. 2020, it's all done there for you. And that means that as a colorist, we no longer have to grade each version. 
um, or each format. We once you kind of do that, in theory, that should be it, and mathematically, it should all work out. Now, look, it doesn't because what you see in a cinema, if you're going to actually do a feature film the projection technology is different than your television at home. And so there are things you're going to grade differently depending on time and budget and, and the footage. Um, but the starting place is so much closer. You know, you're only talking, you know, little tweaks, not regrading a whole thing like we used to do. Would it really be a future proofing as well as having a master in the ACES color space that when, um, new projection technology comes out, I'm thinking back to when we were still delivering SD, we would master an HD. (laughs) And and it's quite interesting how that really did, um, was a safety for the future. Is it a similar kind of thing with ACES? I would say so, yes. I mean, definitely the films we work on, we always back up the ACES project. Uh, We render that out. uh, And then from any point on, we can create any other color space from there. So yes, I would definitely say so. And um, the cameras that going into it, are there, is it widely adopted across a lot of cam- camera manufacturers or is there, a, is there a list of cameras that you really <laughs> like DOPs to shoot with that makes the whole process so much better? Yeah, smoother? well, <laughs> I think more there's, there's cameras I'd like them not to shoot with, <laughs> um, more than shoot with. Uh, again, I think that probably is a software-dependent thing. No, I mean, for me, uh, using Baselight, no, totally fine. doesn't matter what they shoot with. I, I have ways to get it into ACES color space. It's not a problem. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to us discussing um, HDR for delivery. Yeah. And um, HDR is really about having more dynamic range, but it's also about the luminance, the um as a measurement of nits, you know, um, for a long time, 100 nits has been our level. And now we're going to a place where they're striving to try and get to 10,000 nits, which is just epically mind-blowing. Can't even look at the screen because it's burning your eyes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, how far along do you think we are that timeline of like um, what the manufacturers are and what people are actually producing at the moment in color grading for HDR, yeah, I think it's I think it's coming. Um, we haven't done any projects here in HDR yet, um, but I, I think it's going to stick around. And I would say two to you know two to three years, you're going to definitely see projects start that way. Whether they finish that way or like you said, we've got the ability to then grade uh, for a release. You know, say if it gets bought by Netflix or something, and that's what they ask for, then um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So the high-end cameras have been able to record the dynamic range needed for that for quite some time. So it feels like there's a lot of content that the industry has been produced that is um, pretty secure in the future as these new um, technologies become reality. Yeah, I think it's um, how far back you go, though, yeah. um, in the in the post-production process because <clears> – <throat> Most of the time, you know, even a couple of years ago, like I said, I think I've been doing ACES for three years. Um, I definitely haven't been saving that. Um, It's a very kind of new thing now where, you know, disk space is cheap enough um, and and renders are fast enough that we can easily archive these things. uh, Where multiple years ago, it was still pretty tough. You know, Baselight is 
awesomely fast. Uh, but getting it from there to anywhere else was sometimes painfully slow. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, I, I think going back, they're going to almost have to start again. Yeah. But yeah. It, yeah, so it is really whether that project really requires it, but at least at least it's there if they have to. Yes. Yeah. Um, when you were talking about before about having a look and offline, it made me think yeah. of um, <laughs> quite a few projects I saw that were done in offline. I'm not talking about when I was at Images, I've just seen them. I'm not going to say where. Where the clients were showing footage that was logarithmic, Yes. And suddenly they kind of got attached to the look. And then it comes time to do the color grade. And it's like, that's not my product. <laughs> yes, welcome to my world. <laughs> so it's it's interesting um, having a look applied so that, the, that you're showing the people involved in the process where you're intending it to be. Yes. Yeah. So that's where having a LUT can be quite useful to quickly get into a space. How does that work for you with having um, like a first light or a, a one light pass on it initially? Do you sort of process that so it's looking how you would like yeah. it? You know what? It's all about budget. Yeah. And um, that's really what kind of where it falls apart <laughs> in all honesty. Um, now, if, if I create a light for a, a client for a specific project, I look at you know, a day or two of rushes at most, uh, or, or on all honesty, usually just camera tests. And we had to come up with a look, which has got nothing to do with what they're going to shoot. Yeah. Um, usually somebody's, um, <laughs> and so it's, it's face. really tough. Uh, and then you've got the, the guys on set doing, you know, the kind of the rushes and doing all that processing. Sometimes we do it at the facility, but you know, it may be 50, 50, um, and then they kind of add their own thing in there. So unless it's a very high budget where you've got all these things established and you actually have a colorist on set or you have a colorist looking, you know, doing rushes. Um, yeah, it's, it's more of a technical lot where they throw one on, but it, it just doesn't quite work because it's not really made for what they're shooting. That that's, that's been the problem. Yeah. 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 It's, it's an interesting one. As the equipment's democratized it, everyone feels that they're a lot more comfortable with <laughs> their their level of knowledge and that they Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now look, I mean, following, you know, a resolve or a base light path, um, like you said, you can have base light in an avid, and so yes, I could actually generate they're not even lots. I can actually generate my color stack and give them to them. Um there's a BLG is their file format that I can kind of export and it gives them not a lot, actual, all my color information that goes into it. Yeah. Uh, and that's a much better way to work because it's not a lot, it's not burnt in. Um, and I can kind of control things and we can, it can be kind of instant feedback back and forth. I can change things and they can, they can use it and see it. Um, but again, it's a budget thing of how much they're prepared to kind of pay for that service versus doing a technical lot or very rough look of a lot and yeah. then, um, waiting to, for color correction. Yeah. Yeah, um, so I, I like to coin it as false economy sometimes. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, it appears that you're saving by not um, investing in that up front, but actually you pay for it many, many more times yes. over at the end. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the amount of clients I've had come in and go, oh, but the offline looks – I just – I like the offline. And you're just and, – and it is. It's flat or it's got this crazy look on that someone – 
bought, came up with, I, I don't even know. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, that's so not correct for what you're doing, you know? Yeah. And then it does. Then you take time trying to work, you know, yourself kind of backwards out of that and working with the client to get them to kind of see, Hey, this is what the, the DOP wanted. Yes. You have this lot and you know, you kind of have to work that into the process. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And with, um, a lot of these processes and budgets decreasing, I, I see some productions where um, the budget's tight and so suddenly there will be no soundy. And, <laughs> and, the, and the DOP, who's really the director as well, is also suddenly doing sound. And I've seen it on post as well where an understanding of colour, um, that role isn't valued enough to prioritise it in the budget Right. So what is the role of the colorist and right. what does a colorist bring to the value of a project? Hey, look, I don't edit. I don't do effects. I don't add graphics to your project. You know, um, I color and that's, that's the thing. I mean, you're right. You have editors who have resolve or they've got, you know, baseline on Avid, um, or final cut or they use, um, the Adobe packages to do it. Speed grade. But that, that doesn't make you a colorist. Um, I can edit in Baselight. You can edit in Resolve. <laughs> that doesn't make you an editor. You know, yeah. you have to use the tool that, that works for you. And look, the, the experience just says it all. I mean, yeah, it, it is a tough one. You're, you're totally right. It is that budget thing. Um, as an example, years ago, I um, worked on a music video. And it's not, it's not one of my specialties. I do them every so often. And, um, this is a client I had been working with and they wanted to bring it to me and I'm sure, okay, here we go. You know, we'll give you four hours. We'll do this music video. And, um, I finished in two and a half. Now I'm not saying cause I'm awesome or anything. It's just, that's how long it took. What they were going to do is do it in a flame suite. And they had, uh, two weeks every evening booked to do the same thing that I did in two hours. Yeah. Um, so right there, you've got to have the right tool and you've got to have a person that, that, look, that's all I do. It's, it's simple, you know, for me that, that, that's my life. That, that's what I do. And, you know, could you see sitting in a, in a, you know, in a flame, which isn't really great for color anyway, for two weeks, Yeah, it's, you know, and, and you're talking about time budget. I mean, look, maybe it would have cost them less because they were getting a great deal. Um, but their time's got to be worth way more than than that savings yeah i totally agree it's like you're not actually paying for that two and a half hours you're paying for that 23 years of experience yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what you're really paying for and, and it's like um knowing having that confidence that you're going in the right direction with something rather than yes floating around trying to find where it has to be i've seen that so many times and so uh, that is really where i see um the value of post-production is having these specialist people, post houses, who are dedicated, who are battle-hardened. Yes. <laughs> and who um, know how to get something through, um, like really big projects through in the most optimal time, but at the highest quality. So we, we've, yeah, all a good point. we've all seen this huge shift over the last decade, especially of um, it's a tough, tough industry. How have you felt? 
where the industry is going is it feeling good still that people do value you know i also think that you don't want to have the clients that can't see the value you bring (laughs) so how are you feeling about the industry at the moment now that you've got a view back on where it's gone and it's it's changed so much since i've been in it i mean you know look i started out in telecine um if if you don't know what that is basically you had to shoot on film you know, 35 millimeter or 16 millimeter, and you had to get that to some kind of, that wasn't even digital. Well, at the end it was, you know, it was some analog tape format. And um, the room I started in cost $3 million US. You know, you, you couldn't just go in the room. You had to know what you were doing. It was expensive. And, you know, at that point, no one knew what a colors was because it was very rare that you got in those suites to, to do it. To, you know, fast forward now 23 years, Literally, you can just download a program and boom, you know, there you go. Um, I think now there are more people, more agencies, you know, producers know about color, which is great. Um, but sometimes they don't quite know the difference, yeah. you know, of, of that experience and, and really what, you know, what that advantage is. You know, they, they still have to have a budget and they go, oh, but, you know, so-and-so can do it you know, down the road for a couple hundred dollars an hour. And, you know, it's the, you know, the quality at the end is going to be the same. And, and technically, sure, you know, we're all in digital formats now. You know, I work totally uncompressed, but you could do that at your house. But you're right. I think the, the main thing you said, though, was getting a project to, to finish, to completion. And especially with color, everyone sees it differently. Everyone talks about it differently. And it's those years of experience of how to interpret their vision into, you know, their project and make it work. Yeah, definitely. I think that I just really appreciate the craft of colorists and um, what they bring to a project. And it's something that's really difficult to articulate, like we've said. Yes. But it's the same for a DOP or a director where you're adding a lot of effort and a lot of passion to something that someone will never be able to identify. Yes. But that's where the value lives. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it is, it's those subtle things that, that make all the difference. Um, and, and just working through it with a client and being able to show them. I mean, the other thing with, you know, the software and the things that, that I use is that it's all in real time and we can try things and instantly have that feedback and I can do, you know, through three or four different looks, play them all in real time and talk about it and easily, you know, quickly whittle down what they wanted their ideas to something that's going to work, you know, and that's the key. You know, I don't have, you know, the clients don't have the money to sit there and come, you know, kind of create in the suite. And so, you know, on a commercial, you got to know it in the first 10, 15 minutes, you've got to have a look. And, you know, like I said, with Hillary, it took much longer, but it was a very long process at the same point, but they didn't spend, you know, hours coming up with a look. We did it very, you know, uh, efficiently. Efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, we did. You know, I I said it took time and and that's because we had it, but we didn't, you know, we explored a couple different avenues, but then very quickly narrowed it down and then actually used that as our basis to kind of create the look once I had the footage. We didn't, you know, we didn't circle a planet three, four times to come up with something. It was, it was yeah. there. I always like to explain that I'm not paid to um, do something where I'm taking something that's shot perfectly 
and uh, make it look great. I'm there to identify the issues and solve the problems. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because that's, that's where the real hard work is. It's t- taking something that isn't at its best and like really presenting it at a, a high level. And, and with colour, the only reason that I'm passionate about colour is because of photography. And yep. I spent many hours pr- practising grading on still images with raw images having only had the dynamic range of JPEGs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so going through that, is, and I think that um, somebody who's really passionate about um, or wants to do color grading in their video work should just put the hours in on still images because it's oh, a definitely. fast way to get there with the knowledge too. Look, you know, the things that I tell colorists that are coming up, if I'm mentoring them or helping them, um, is just to look at a thousand, you know, hundreds of thousands of different images and, and look at them. And like you said, you just start kind of playing around. It, it doesn't matter if it's video or a still image. The, your eyes, you have to train your eyes. You have to train your brain to memorize color, which is, which is difficult. And that's the key. The, the software packages in the beginning don't matter at all. You know, yeah. it, it's getting that and getting your eyes to see the proper thing and not being confused or tricked um, into seeing different things. And then you kind of build on that. Um, and then, you know, the next step is to find something out of a magazine or on Pinterest and try to recreate that with whatever you shot, you know, whatever your photograph is. And start remembering those because when a client comes in and says, oh, I want something, you know, from the 80s, I need it to look like this or I need it to look like the, you know, the 50s or it's got to look like, you know, this film, you've got to do it. You can't, you can't think about it. You've got to just kind of go pull those, you know, images from your head and it might not be exactly what they're talking about, but you have those visions yeah. and you've got those memories and then you, you present it. And then from there, again, because everyone talks about color differently, then you work with the client to see what they're seeing. Um, and, and you just kind of keep it going, but it is, it takes, it takes time and you're right. You know, whether you do it in Photoshop on a still image, it, it's fine. Yeah. No, there's some really great, um, information there on, um, looking and seeing different types of images and where those images in in our mind puts that content like looking at the 40s or the 50s or the 60s yep. different eras looking at where the black points are like how black are they or are they quite lifted how much saturation are the are the colors pivoting off into a different tint yes <laughs> but being really analytical about what what the color and the contrast levels and all of it are adding to it and even grain grain is a huge one too i remember seeing um digital hd for the first time and going where's the where's the grain (laughs) and for a long time clients couldn't it didn't feel cinematic unless we put some grain on it correct yes and so um yeah Content goes through this different stages of look and feel that you can really quite quickly um, do a Google search, find some images, find some reference, go to Pinterest, have some boards. Yeah, totally. And I'm always looking when I'm working with creators for them to give me some of their own reference too. 
because, like you said, it's really hard to talk about it. And if they've got something in their head and I'm trying to articulate it, we could be in completely different (laughs) ballparks. Yes, yes. Bringing images is definitely helpful. Yes. Um, and, and as a colorist, look, you also have to <clears throat> think about the client and, you know, their experiences. And then when they're sitting in the suite, and I'm sure you have this for, for what you do, um, like I said, everyone sees color differently and their eyes are going to get tricked. And as a colorist, you've got to make sure that they're going where they want and, and, you know, you can tell if someone's seeing something incorrectly and you've got to kind of back up that process. Um, you know, when I, I taught a group of colorists in Vietnam a couple of years ago, and it was a room of say 20 colorists and they were very beginning colorists and we we're going through things. Look for half an hour, I gave them instructions on the project. We went through it, how to do it. And as I walked around, every person had a different color on their screen. Yeah. You know, the instructions were exactly the same, but they all saw color differently. Their eyes tricked them. And it was just amazing to see. And that happens in a session all the time. You know, I always have to have a color, especially if I'm doing a, a very creative look or something that's very warm or cold, you really always want to have a neutral look so that yeah. you can readjust your eyes and more importantly, the client's eyes because they're, you know, they're going to see something that was warm that they bought off on, on shot two or three. And when you're, you know, sitting in the room for a half an hour, it's not going to look warm anymore. Yeah. And you've got to know that. And as they ask for, Oh, actually, can we look at that again? Cause it wasn't quite warm enough. You've got to know when to stop that process, bring them back to kind of, you know, what normal is and then show them again. Yeah. That's such a great point. And I really do like being able to um, switch off a grade. Yes. Go like, Remember where we came from. <laughs> Bring them back. So it's like your wine tasting. You can't just keep swigging down different <laughs> wines. You got to take a. You got to spit well, it you out. Can. And, <laughs> you can't. Suddenly, the wine doesn't really matter what yes, it tastes yeah, like. Exactly. <laughs> no, look, it's the same yeah. thing. Like we talked about with um, you know how I grade a session. It is. It's it's matching, and then I slowly add the looks in. But I can easily turn it on and off, yeah. just to make sure we're on the you know on the right road. And, and have the look that they want. Yeah. For those who are out shooting, exposure is such a big part of um, exposing <laughs> digital, just as you did film correctly. Yes, yes. So um, any sort of um, knowledge that you could pass on to the listeners with how to expose, um, and it really does come down to knowing what the camera is and where those cameras best sit as well, isn't it? It is. Um, I think camera tests to kind of see the range of the camera, if you haven't used that before, uh, make a difference. But at the same point, don't trick yourself into just doing that. You know, shoot some real footage. Um, please, please, please <laughs> use lights. Um, I don't care how sensitive your sensor is. It, you, you still need light. Now, whether that's natural light that you're bouncing with a white card or a reflector, but you have to tell a story with light. That's what you're doing. So you've got exposure, um, but you also have to craft that light. You know, the, the viewer looks at the brightest part of the image on the screen at at that time. That's where they're directed to. Um, And and also take away the light. 
Oh, you know, it's exactly. You know, use use the blacks and really exactly. Yeah, craft it. Yeah, um, and again, that's part of that looking through a lot, so at least you have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. Um, the main thing I tell DOPs is um, don't underexpose. Please, please do not underexpose. Most of these cameras now um, have the high dynamic range, like we've talked about, the latitude of thirteen-ish stops. Uh, and all that information's at the top end, not at the bottom end. So if you want it dark, that's great. That's what I'm here to do. Um, or you can, you know, create a lot that that knocks down a couple stops. That is so much better than not exposing it properly. And if you underexpose it, and I have to bring it up or anything, you're losing it. I mean, in a in a linear sensor, which the cameras are nowadays, that first stop is half the information. So why would you not use that? Um, you can always make it darker later, but you try to dig something out of the shadows, it, it just doesn't work. So, yeah. t- look, know your camera. There's certain cameras that hold the highlights better, but in all honesty, n- these new cameras, really, you could overexpose by a stop and have zero problem. It um, made me remember listening to FX Guide um, discussion about the Mad Max grading, and they were doing day for night, night shots seat, yes. and really <laughs> overexposing. And it seemed. It yeah. didn't make sense <laughs> at all. <laughs> but yeah, it was um, talk to your colorists, work with them. Well, it, it, look, it's it's trust your team. Yeah. It's a you team know, sport, this one. It, it is. And, yeah. you know, we've, we've all seen different footage. We all have different experiences. But yeah, you, you just don't underexpose anymore. That's, that's what we're here for. You know? We have um, in-house content directors now um, and – the thing that I really enjoy is being able to grow together and to try things and to talk openly. So it's not a um, looking like you don't know what you're doing because we're actually just working together to try to find the best we can from the gear that we're using, the processes that we're doing. Yeah. And so I think that's a really big one is just working as a team, like you say, yeah. and, um, Trying to do as much up front so that you don't pay for it at the back end because you will. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, and that's part of the testing. That's part of you know just having discussions about this. There's yeah. things that are so much easier to do in camera yeah. um, that I could do, but would take so much more time. And so it's it's exploring those options definitely. Yeah. But yes, please please don't underexpose. That that's that would be my, <laughs> my awesome one thing. And now it's time for the Pro Video Picks. So what would your Pro Video Pick be for this week? <laughs> uh, funny you say that. I've kind of gone through your episodes and listened to them. And, um, you know, there's always software choices or hardware things. But uh, my pick this week is to go outside, experience life, see what light is actually like, you know, in the real world. We all sit in, in rooms. I sit in a completely pitch black, no window room, you know, eight plus hours a day. And, um, you need those, you need those life experiences. You need those experiences. So when the client comes in and says, Hey, I want a romantic sunset or I want, you know, I'm doing this horror film and it has to be scary. You've got to know what to do and you got to get outside to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally true. It's, um, the same as going back to neutral. With the yes. look. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to find some creativity, you've got to get yourself away from that computer and into oh, yes. experiences. Yeah. 
my pro video pick is going to be Lightroom because that is, while it's not the fastest and I really hope Adobe speed it up, it is the fastest way that I learned to grade myself is by processing literally tens of thousands of photos through Lightroom and playing. And I look back on my early grades and I really don't like them because I was pushing it too far. But like we took mm. a bit before to really start understanding it, you do have to push it a bit. And it's much easier than trying to inch towards it a look is to push it way too far and then pull it back yes. to where it works. So yeah, Lightroom, take lots of photos. Better if it's a raw image on a DSLR and think about everything else that goes into it as well. Composition, focal length, lens choices, all of it adds into it because like being part of a team of creating video creating a look isn't just about one aspect it's about how they all come together no that's look that's a great one and the other thing for lightroom you know if you're looking at different looks and, and creating things is the fact that you can make virtual copies and and yeah. do it again and then compare you know one to the other and see what you've done and if you've gone too far it's yeah i use it i sometimes have different looks kind of built in there um plugins that i use as just ways to come up with different ideas yeah and then you can see lightroom's great in that regard because you can see what they did to do it and then you recreate it you know kind of in your own way and in other software yeah yeah i started out um grading in apple color when apple bought it (laughs) a while ago now and this is when i truly tried to become to, I really appreciated color grading from um, what I saw at images and I wanted to be able to do that with my work because of how much value it added to content. And then um, DaVinci came along and then Speedgrade was bought by Adobe. Yeah. And so I was learning that, but I'd only just started when I was like, oh, I want to use it. I did a little bit of a cheat. I graded up many looks inside of Lightroom, exported it, and then did the match grade. (laughs) (laughs) Which basically is like creating a fake LUT really quickly. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) It would, but it was, I knew what I was doing was not right. (laughs) Right. No, it it still got you there in the end. Yeah. Um, The main thing, you know, that I have to tell clients at times too is, is the fact that you have these tools, Lightroom, Photoshop, and, and I come with just, you know, these samples that they've done. Oh, we've just pulled a still out of the, the footage. And um, that's great for a still, but sometimes it just doesn't work for moving images. Yeah. You know, the things you can do in Photoshop or Lightroom um, don't translate. You know, no. I can't do all these mats and shit. You can, but it's it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't got into the technicalities about grading through a shot a shot that's right. changing the light <laughs> <laughs> and even changing an environment. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a lot of things that come into making a look work across a whole piece of video. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today, Paul. Um, it's really cool to have people that have been an influence in my career come on the show. So thank you for coming on. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Where can the listeners uh, find you online? Many different places. I have a website, paullear.tv. So P-A-U-L-L-E-A-R.tv. That's where you can kind of see the work I've done. I definitely am on LinkedIn. You can find me there. I do have a website where I do training tutorials for Baselight. That's baselight-tutorials.com. 
um, that's probably the, the things. Awesome. You know, and you can look, I'm happy for people to contact me through LinkedIn and connect and ask questions. I'm very open. I love teaching and helping people out. It's, you know, that's, that's really my passion. Awesome. Awesome. Really encourage you guys to step out and uh, contact. I find um, I'm always putting myself out there and I'm always surprised how nobody takes me up on it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you really do just like, that's what I love about this industry. Everyone's really open to sharing and helping. So, um, Except colorists. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. Most of us don't. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the good ones do. They do. Yeah. Which they is do. why I know that you do, because you're one of the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> I have been saying that on um, LinkedIn every so often, uh, once or twice a year. I kind of open it up in a couple of different uh, discussion groups and say, hey, look, you know, I'll give away 10 hours of, of time. You know, hit me up. And it's, it's been fun. It's a great way to kind of meet new people and um, see other projects that people are working on. Cool. Cool. Yeah. You can find the Pro Video Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and Slack and Facebook. We're everywhere. Just search for Pro Video Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Blair Walker. And I'd really encourage you all, please, subscribe to the show. Leave a rating, leave a review. It really does help for building up the show. And I'm wanting to do that so that I can connect with more of you too and to have you on the show and to share your knowledge, your experiences, the content, the work that you're producing. So please like, rate, and subscribe. Okay. Well, thank you again, Paul, for being on the show. It's been a pleasure having you, mate. Oh, thank you. Sweet. And you guys, I'll catch you next week. All right. Cheers. Bye.